Hi, and welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. My name is Chris Fault, Deputy Editor of Film and TV Craft at IndieWire. And welcome back. Uh, we just finished our big uh, Craft Influencers project over on the website, and uh, now as we're rounding into Oscar nomination voting, uh, we're going to have a, about seven new podcasts. I've recorded six so far, waiting for waiting for a seventh guest. Um, and we're going to be starting with some new releases. Uh, next week, uh, we're going to have director Shaka King talking about his new film, Judas and the Black Messiah, which is hitting uh, HBO Max on Friday and then the week after that we'll welcome back Chloe Zhao and her DP Josh Richards talking about their new film Nomadland which is hitting Hulu on the 19th and today's guest Sam Levinson whose black and white film Malcolm and Marie was released on Netflix over the weekend uh you know I hate doing this I, I want to address something up top here and uh yeah I hate doing this but I think it's important if for no other reason than my conscience um I knew when I saw this film uh, that when Malcolm, uh, Hollywood uh, director played by John David Washington in this movie, goes off on an extended and repeated rant about film criticism, uh, in particular, this is my interpretation, you know, kind of white woke culture, you know, through the lens of evaluating his work as a black director and, and his particular ire is focused on a white female critic at the L.A. Times. Uh, I knew this would be a uh, hot topic of discussion, heated topic of discussion. And, uh, you know, I'm not usually one to normally jump into those discussions uh, beyond being a white male film writer myself, possibly guilty of, <laughs> to some degree of some of the things that Malcolm is going off about. It's just not the type of craft and process conversations uh, we have on this podcast. And, and, you know, in the interview, I glossed over it. Uh, you know, Sam and I talk about it briefly and, you know, how much of this stuff is in his head while he's writing. Um but, you know, my assumption going into this interview was that the white female critic at the L.A. Times was a character that Sam went out of his way to make sure that there was no potential real life critic who could be directly correlated to this fictional off-screen character. And so then the day after I did this interview, Justin Chang's L.A. Times review of Malcolm and Marie dropped and he addressed the fact that Katie Walsh, uh, working as a freelance critic, for the Times wrote a blistering, highly critical review of Sam's last film, Assassination Nation. Uh, Katie Walsh is one of the most talented critics working today. And I don't want to give the impression that her and I are close friends. Uh, we're not, but I've known her for a very long time, well before either of us was in this business. And uh, she's also someone who has incredible personal and professional integrity. She's just a good person. But even if she wasn't, no critic deserves to have their name dragged into the release of a movie especially a highly anticipated major Netflix release with two massive stars. It sucks. No one deserves this, but especially Katie. Um, anyway, so I wrote Sam um, afterwards, and I, I, I asked him to, you know, I wrote, I wrote to his team and asked if he could, you know, give some kind of statement about this or address this, because, you know, like I said, I would have talked about it if he was here, if, I, if you know, Justin's review had come out beforehand. And uh, Sam's team sent along this. Uh, this is from Sam. To be honest, I was surprised by Justin Chang's leap to suggest it was based on any one person. The choice uh, to choose the L.A. Times was simply a geographical one. Um, just a little sidebar here. You know, they're coming from the they're coming from the premiere of the film. And uh, and Malcolm has talked to the critics. So, you know, the idea that the critic is local, I guess, was probably ways to getting at there. Uh, the premiere takes place in L.A. The character of the critic of Malcolm Emery is fictional. And the inspiration is not any single bad review that I had received, which I assumed would be evident by the fact that Malcolm receives a rave review. OK, Um I don't have the same animosity towards Sam that a lot of my colleagues do. Uh, Euphoria. Uh, is one of the more innovative shows I've seen on TV. It's his creation, and this film, uh, which is not for everyone, it's 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 not it's not an easy watch. It's two lovers going hard at each other, really trying to hurt each other. is a is, is a formally interesting experiment, and really plays with Zendaya's persona in, in interesting ways. And I think, and I I say this as a husband of someone who works with a number of top directors and showrunners. Uh, the concern that Sam showed for his Euphoria crew, which lost over a half a year work when the uh, plug was pulled last minute on season two because of the pandemic in March and making sure that they stayed employed and had a piece of this film is commendable. Trust me when I tell you that that is rare. That having been said, this should not have happened. I'll take him at his word that it was unintentional, but someone, including Sam, should have safeguarded this character better so that there was no direct or obvious connection to be made to a critic like Katie. 
Sam and his team should not be surprised what Justin wrote. And if for no other reason than the fact that this now plays like a filmmaker's revenge fantasy and undermines the work itself. Okay. All right. I hate doing that. Um, you know, <laughs> if you follow me, I don't, I don't usually get into this stuff. Um, uh, but I couldn't have this interview play like I blew it off because um, I didn't know this was an issue when I did the interview. Anyways, I, I think this is a great discussion. Sam apparently listens to this podcast and was totally game to have the type of uh, craft and process as discussion that we, we have on this show. One of the better guests I've had in a while. So I, uh, I hope you enjoy this. Perfect. And I'll plug this back in. Super. So I just so you know, I'm usually a lot more prepared for this. I only saw the movie last night and then I saw the movie and the Hunter episode last night. So I'm a little. Oh, wow. Just um, just I'm, I'm, pro- I'm yeah, processing yeah. it all right now. So, <laughs> yeah, so but, I'm I'm still processing it all. So, <laughs> so you know what? You've had like a very productive. You've had a very productive uh, pandemic in the sense of, of this movie in the in the two episodes. I'm wondering, though, I, I keep reading about, you know, you're just about to start season two. I'm wondering, you know, talk a little bit about getting that spacecraft going, you know, creatively, <laughs> the team. I have to imagine not only is there momentum of like we're going, we're going to go do this. But I also have to imagine that mentally and creatively you're kind of in, in, in a, in a, in a, in a very unusual place to just have the plug pulled right there. Right. Cause I have to imagine that's part of it. Right. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, it's euphoria is a massive logistical mind fuck of a production just in terms of locations. You know, there's, 50 to 60 locations per episode um, in terms of the amount of characters, the amount of actors casting, the amount of sets that we're building. Cause I would say, you know, 75% of, uh, of the show takes place on sound stages and there are sets that we build um, lighting designs, plans, everything. So it's a whole, it's like a, it's probably, you know, six to eight months of like, of just pure prep before we, before we get going. And that's, and that's like with, you know, uh, Marcel Rev, our cinematographer and, um, ADs, and then also just writing and rewriting and just trying to get it, get it to a place that feels good. But, um, had you, did you have the season written? Were you, were you, I mean, I I had written the season. Yeah. yeah. Well, I wrote it twice. Okay. I wrote, and now I'm writing it a third time. (laughs) I'm rewriting it. Um, but, uh, yeah, I because I we finished season season one and then I just I started writing. I took two weeks off um, and then started writing season two right away. And then that went through a couple of different evolutions and stuff. I don't, I, you know, I'm not someone who's like super organized with like arcs and note cards and all this kind of stuff. I just I like the kind of spontaneity and the messiness of um, of of the world. And as soon as I start to kind of plot things out, I feel like um, it cuts down on the kind of unpredictability of it. Uh, I feel like I'm always like getting from A to B to C. Um, so s- sometimes that means I just have to write and write in the wrong direction and then go back and, and rewrite it. Um, but yeah, we were shut down a, a day before um, uh, we were about to start on on season two. And I mean, the other part of it too is you know, uh, almost all of our crew from season one, you know, uh, came back and, um, and, you know, these are people who really had, you know, my back through season one and, um, and just all the different changes. And it was also the first time I was ever working in television and it's kind of a different universe in a way. Um, and, you know, so, but, you know, I'm like on the, you know, I'm on the phone with crew members saying like, no, no, we're going to go in March. Like it's, it's going to happen. And then suddenly the plug gets pulled. Um, and so it kind of, it created this anxiety, I think within me about, well, how, how are we going to, you know, like, how can we get back to work? How can we make sure that, you know, people can, can get paid and they have a job? Cause at that point it looked like just nothing. There was no, no future to it. And I didn't believe the kind of idea that we would be back up and running in six weeks. Mm-hmm. You know, you did something that I expected more people to do. And as I, I think I was reading, I don't know if it's a deadline story, but 
one where you and Zadaya were interviewed, but it was at one point there was this idea of like, we'll just shoot in my house. I think she said to you or something like this. Yeah. And it was funny in the indie world. I half expected, you know, the one that I, I I live in the Northeast. The one I expected is like, I'm going to grab 15 people and go up to some house in Vermont, you know, or something. I, I kind of expected a lot more of because you see those films so sometimes those films are made it's like let's go in three weeks and Ah. do things and it it, maybe there will be more i mean sundance is about to start but it really feels like that was maybe this genesis of like can we get a bunch of people together and kind of i don't know if it's live together or be together and bubbled and and do something intimate like this right yeah i mean it's also just look you know covid provided certain restrictions on what you're able to shoot and and it was this idea of we don't know how long this is going to last um can we tell a compelling story with just two characters in one location um and that's 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 all it was it was sort of an exercise Mm -hmm. i mean i had no idea what i was going to write when i kind of sat down to write Mm -hmm. i kind of i would kick around ideas with z and say like what if we're doing like a cross between like repulsion and casey undercover and you know, you're stuck in, you know, in some sort of fantasy where you still think you're on the television show. You know what I mean? Like, and she's like, uh, I don't know, Sam. But, you know, and I was just sort of kicking things around. I talked to Marcel and um, and stuff. But I think, yeah, it was just it was a way of, of like, can can we do this? Can mm-hmm. where can we shoot? Um, Carmel, I think, was the only place that allowed us to shoot on private property without a permit. Um, so. We knew that if we were going to go shoot something, it would have to be there. Um, and yeah, it was just, it, there was no real design to it when when we kind of set out. And then as I started writing, um, just things started happening where my producer, Kevin Turin, called me and he's like, he's like, uh, he's like, you still writing? I said, I said, yeah. He said, uh, okay, good. Just make sure you finish it because I just put $80,000 worth of black and white film on my credit card. So <laughs> you got to make this fucking movie. And it was like all these pressures just started to kind of stack up um, until I realized that I really had to make the movie or else, you know, <laughs> I was going to be in real trouble. You know, obviously you have a, a working relationship with Zendaya and and. and in, in this larger universe of euphoria, you know, you're aware of what she can bring to it. And I'm sure you've written to a lot of those skills before, but it's, it's part of a, a larger world that you've, you've conceived of that she's at the middle of. And one of the things in, in watching the film last night that I couldn't help but think about was the reverse here of writing something for her, creating a world for her, because it feels to me like there's certain elements here, not only of her strengths as an actress, but also an element here, and I think she was a large part of the story in creation too, a large part of this is also um, a persona, a persona of her as an adult, of of, of a skill set. And it, it, there's just something here that feels to me that not only the restrictions that you were just talking about, but her almost gave this a structured. Am I, am I completely off uh, here? No, I, I, I think you're correct in that. I I learned very on very early on in Euphoria to never underestimate Z's like talent or depth. Um, and I think when I sat down to write Malcolm and Marie, I was thinking a lot about who I know Z to be. You know, she's very funny, very confident. Um, she's tough. She has mind scrapping. Um, and I wanted to write a character that resembled certain things that I, I know about. I just, I know about her, but also in a strange way, uh, uh, allow it to be kind of an evolution of, of who Rue could maybe become. Um, and I think the arc of Marie in Malcolm and Marie is you underestimate her kind of, in the beginning, mm-hmm. you think like, oh, this is just, this is just sort of, you know, his, his muse or, um, his girlfriend. And, and I think part of it is about, is about continuing to, to sort of, you know, peel back those layers until you realize that, no, she's actually like the center of gravity, uh, and, and, uh, and the only sort of grounding force in this, you know, in, in, in that relationship. Um, and so I think 
playing to those kind of preconceptions that people have. And even it was interesting. I was having a conversation about it recently, even in terms of just her wardrobe and her, her costume, it was something where I had said, I'd said to Z at one point, I was like, Z, I, you gotta, you gotta put the kimono on. It's just, I feel like you've been in this, you know, t-shirt and underwear for like way too long. And I'm telling you, I'm, I'm going to get killed for it. I, I know you want to wear it, but I'm going to get killed for it. And she was like, she was like, no, I, no, I feel like this is, I, I don't want to have any armor on. I was like, I totally understand that from an acting perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to get killed for it. I can't, I cannot allow it. Mm-hmm. And, and what she said is, and she's also a producer on the film. And we ended up having a really long, fascinating conversation about it in which she was saying, no, I want people to continue to underestimate Marie. And it made me think about the idea of, of, of inequality on screen, right? Marie is very much Malcolm's equal. Um, but there are certain things just in the evolution of the story that make you unsure if that's A, the, the truth, and B, sort of the film's perspective. And there's something interesting about how that unravels um, until you until you realize sort of in that final 15 minute, you know, uh, stretch, you know, who she is and how much weight she carries. Yeah, there's something about her and her presence on screen of like a slow burn strength, like a stoic. There's always been something about her that has like a a strength, but also this kind of like stoic calm to a certain degree. And it feels to me like each layer you're pulling away, it's like that steel that's in her is, is and it's in her in a very quiet way. You know, there's something, it's, it's, it's going to be really fascinating to watch her other artists and everybody start building things around her persona as she gets older. Cause it's, 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 I was thinking about old Hollywood and there's only a few other examples I can think of people like her that have that. And it's, um, it's interesting that you, that part of the design here is this underestimating of her as you peel yeah, away these well, layers. But it's also, too, I wanted to kind of intentionally, even just in the writing of it, flip the the sort of stereotypical gender roles on it where she plays in many ways like the stoic mm-hmm. male character in the relationship, whereas Malcolm is very much the um, female hysteric mm-hmm. in some ways, you know, and so where he's he's running around screaming at trees, upset, emotional, fencing with bushes, mm-hmm. you know, and she's just sitting there, you know, uh very quietly, she's hard to read, you know that the wheels are turning, but you don't know exactly what her next move is. Mm. Um and there's something very very interesting about it. She's one she's she's so good at listening as an actor. Um it's a rare thing to find um, someone who you can hold on their face when they're not saying anything and you feel like there's an arc in between in between the dialogue or, you know, just in the quiet moments. It's something like even at the diner episode in, in Euphoria, that last that last moment uh, where it's the how do you want to be remembered? And it's like 40 seconds of just the evolution of, of the emotion. It's it's uh I think that's because she's just really, she's actually in it. When she clicks into it, she's in it. There's not, it's not rehearsed in that way. It's not, there's no kind of technique to it. It's just, it's very much how she's reacting to the emotion in the moment. I had put in thing, something here that I wanted to talk to you about is when, when to use those reaction shots and when to, to watch her listen, you know? And, and cause I think one of the things that's really interesting here that, you know, if we just use, you know, the, I know everybody's talking about is going to be talking about this about how how this is so much different than Euphoria, and, and, and one of the things that I was I've been thinking about as I was watching it last night was, you know, Euphoria has these big heightened emotional realism moments that you and your team express formally, the camera, the cutting, the color, the makeup, and I would want, when you start that up again, I want to talk to you about that show. We'll, we'll we'll table it for now. And what's interesting about Malcolm and Marie is it has these huge emotional moments too. It has these fluctuations of emotion, and I'm curious. But obviously, you're not you're shooting it beautifully in black and white. You're not you're not you're not giving it that that heightened formally 
uh, element of, of, of euphoria. And I'm curious because you don't want this to be a theater piece because you don't want this just to be two two people, um, doing reading beautiful words and acting well, but also want it to work cinematically. How did you approach making this cinematically and dramatically interesting? Because I have to imagine there's one thing for the dialogue and the performance, and then there's other of like where we're going to be, how we're going to relate to these people, and kind of the 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 visual plan for that. Um, well, there's a couple of elements to it, which is I, I'm always. Uh, kind of acutely aware of what I feel to be audience's attention span, maybe even like more than I, I should be. And so with Euphoria, part of its formal design was that if, you know, uh, was that the camera and the lighting and the movement articulated the emotion and and that if people looked away for 30 seconds, we would sort of leave them in the dust. And I kind of wanted to do the inverse with this, which is, use the dialogue in the same way that we use the camera in, in, uh, in euphoria so that there's a rapid fire pace to it. And then at the same time to essentially strip back all of the, take out all the color, take out the kind of, you know, the sort of editorial patterns of euphoria and, but still not adhere to realism or that kind of, you know, or what could be perceived as like a documentary style, you know, piece, which is, is something that doesn't really interest me. Um, and I think, I mean, look, it's, I mean, it's funny. We initially started with 10 shooting days and um, Marcel, our cinematographer and I, and um, had this kind of very specific formal plan of how we were going to shoot this thing. You know, I, I've always loved kind of Preminger's, blocking and and movement you know specifically you know in like bunny lake is missing which i think is uh just it's just terrifically choreographed and i thought you know that's that we should do something like that we should have that kind of movement and choreography because you don't really see see that in 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 films right now and maybe there's a way to do it energetically we go in we shoot the whole first day I'm looking at Marcel towards the end of the day and I'm kind of shaking my head. He's shaking his head and I just know it's like not clicking. I tell the actors, wonderful job. We just did like 30 takes of the first scene. Did you do chronological? Were, were you guys going chronological? Did you? Yeah, yeah. You did. Okay. We shot the whole thing in order. Yeah. So we shoot the first thing. We get into the car. I turn to Marcel. I was like, this fucking movie looks like a whiskey commercial <laughs> or something. It's so clean. And he's like, I know, I know. This is depressing. What are we going to do? And I said, well, let's just throw out the first day. And then we'll just shoot the second day because we were self-financing the movie. So we didn't have to answer to a studio or anything. He's like super relieved. We come up, to, we come back to work the next day. We decide we're going to shoot the whole movie handheld. I have to go tell the actors all that beautiful work you did. Uh, we got to, mm-hmm. we're going to get rid of it. We're going to shoot the whole thing handheld. JD's going, you mean like every take? And I was like, yeah, yeah, no, every take. Whole, starting again from scratch. So we shoot, you know, the whole day. And... Probably about an hour before we were finishing the day, I'm looking over at Marcel. He's had the camera, a thousand foot mag on his shoulder for, you know, the whole time. He's like lost 10 pounds. He's sweating. And I kind of shake my head. He shakes his head. I tell the actors, beautiful work. Fantastic. We got it today. Get into the car. I'm like, Marcel, this thing has like no design. It's a fucking disaster. He's like, I know. I felt the same thing. You know, we, we go back. We're totally depressed. Come back the third day. We decide, fuck it, let's just move on to the next shot, which is Z in the bathroom. And then we kind of dolly over to see Malcolm coming into the living room and dancing. It was only in that moment when I realized that it was the, you know, it worked because we were sort of looking at him in one world and her in another world inside of this sort of broader universe. And that you understand the division between the the two, emotionally speaking, and also too that it it this isn't reality. It is a bit of a, a stage play in in design. Uh, I, I I hope it's more cinematic mm-hmm. than a stage play. But um, uh, but it was like finally that sort of clicked in. I remember we had we had um, you know I was explaining to Marcel. He said this is great, but this, the sun is coming up in an hour. Um, and you want to do a seven minute take now. I said, yeah, yeah, we got it. Well, let's just do it. We'll make it happen. So, you know, 
we've got one key grip, Jeff Kunkel, who's a fucking genius mm-hmm. and wonderful. Um, and then it's just my wife and Kevin and Katia and everything. And we're just kicking in the dolly wedges, mm-hmm. just fucking laying the track, mm-hmm. trying to get this thing going. And then we end up, you know, getting three takes off of this opening scene. And we had a, a foot in the mag, but when she grabbed that macaroni box mm-hmm. uh, and we ended up sort of getting it. But so just in terms of its its design, it was it was a it was a piece that I never felt confident about while shooting, and I also I I really believe that any time I've ever felt confident on set, mm. I'm making like massive mistakes mm-hmm. that I'm not seeing. So I I always try to I always try to remind myself like oh you 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 feel good like right now okay then there's a problem you're not you're not paying attention. So every step of the way, it was sort of, we had to approach each scene differently because we wanted to make sure that we were really capturing the performances and that we were in service to, um, to the kind of emotional arc of it. Um, and that we weren't getting in the way of it. Cause it, it's, it was very easy to do it, or fall victim to part of it, it. Let me see if I'm also pulling back a little bit. What you, what you just said too to a certain degree in that sense of where they are in relationship to each other. And part of it seems to also be leaning into that house and what that house has to offer in terms of spatial relationships and frames and, and looking in and out. Right. Is is that, is that, is that, I'm not saying it's purely a spatial thing, but it it seems as if part of the design is, is leaning into what that container had for you. Right. Yeah. I mean, look, we, you know, Michael Grace, our production designer, um, who I've worked with for 15 years, you know, um, you know, we, he must've gone through, I don't know, 1500 different houses and it was always a, no, no, not going to work. Cause we didn't want to be shooting just heads against mm-hmm. walls. Um, we needed a sense of the outside world and also this feeling of like two snakes trapped in a jar. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's, it's really difficult, particularly now, to find sort of modern spaces um, that aren't just sort of all white walls, these like Apple Store kind of locations. And, um, and so that it was, it was, it was that house, I mean, the way we came about it is finally Gracely was just like, why don't we just go through architects that we like and just see what houses they've built? And that's how we found Jonathan Feldman. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, who had built this, the Caterpillar house is what it's called. But, um, but yeah, it was really important because we needed the, we needed the separation between the outside world and then, but also the ability to shoot through glass to track around it. It's also just logistical things where we could, we could really, you know, it was on a preserve. We could, you know, put our, our lights outside. We can make, we can backlight the trees. We can lay dolly track from here to there. So we had a certain flexibility in moving around it. Mm -hmm. Um, but uh, but yeah, no. If it would be a totally different movie if it was any other fucking location. And also, you can kind of, it's one location, but you can kind of pick different spaces for different things, right? You can, you can cr- create a container not only to make it visually int- diverse in terms of what we're looking at, but also using different rooms for different things, right? For different parts, almost is is, is that in how it's designed as well. T- totally, it's like well, you know, we'll shoot on the couch, we'll and then later when we're kind of blocking a scene and trying to figure it out, we're going, we can't shoot another fucking scene on this couch. Mm-hmm. What are we going to do? All right. Well, what about the floor? Okay. What if the camera's here? What if we're mm-hmm. looking down that? So we were trying to rediscover the space in each scene so that I, you know, I, I think my, my greatest fear was that it would be a movie that, you know, it exposes every part of the house in the first 10 minutes and then you kind of go, okay, they're back in this room because mm-hmm. that it's just the it's those imperceptible things that just lead to like audience fatigue and exhaustion. Mm-hmm. So it's like, how can we continue to to uh, to rediscover it? What if it's you know it's just this kind of like white fur rug that we're using now, or you know he's up on you know on this thing, he's outside the bathroom. What are the angles within it? How can we shoot through things? Um, just so that we feel like we're not repeating ourselves. I think that's p- part of that also just comes from working on euphoria and working in television where you're doing eight episodes and you keep going back to the same location and you're going, 
are, are you like, again, like we're going to shoot another scene in this room. I can't take <laughs> yeah. it anymore. You know, and you lose your mind. I'm sure, you know, and so I'm always like, I keep changing the sets even mm-hmm. as we shoot. Cause I'm like, I, it's too boring. It's like, let's cut this wall off at least. Let's change the wallpaper here. Let's do something so it has a little bit of a different feeling. Mm-hmm. And this is one, is this one camera, one lens? Is it one camera? Did you change? It's, it's one camera and uh, and one lens for, I would say, like 85% yeah. of it we shot on the 40. And then occasionally the 50 was really nice for for close-ups. And I think we shot one or two wide shots on like a, on a, on a, maybe a 28 I mean, I'm in, I'm interested in this in two fronts, and maybe maybe there was a lot more shot than than I'm imagining, having just seen the finished product. But no, it doesn't. That's everything. It it, it feels <laughs> to me like you know, a movie or even Euphoria, you, you've got different storylines. You can go back and forth. You have different spaces, and it feels to me like, you know, so you can you can cut your way out. You can restructure your way out. And it feels to me like not only obviously two people in one night in one house, you have less less of that ability, but you also doesn't seem like you're giving yourself a lot of coverage. It feels or ways out. Um, it really, it, it felt to me like these performances are playing out in a very well-designed shot in relationship to space. And obviously you've got the reverse of that when it's the two of them, but it, it doesn't feel like you, there's a lot of play here. I'm not saying the edit was easy, but it doesn't feel like you're, you're giving yourself a lot of coverage or ways out here. No, I think every shot, um, that we shot is in the movie. I don't think there's any, there's not like a, it's not like we have some, you know, like a wide two shot from the other Mm -hmm. side that we didn't use. I think, um, uh, I, you know, it's, it's interesting. I was watching this thing where Soderbergh was talking about, um, how at a certain point in time, he started to think about, well, what's the fewest number of shots I can use to tell the story. And I, and I, I really believe that to be true um, in the sense that I, I'm always, whenever I watch something, I always get distracted by the number of angles, the, you know, the amount of cutting within it. I also tend not to, and I think that I, I tend not to be interested in, in two shots, just generally speaking. Um, I, I, um, I think there's maybe only a couple in this movie and there's very few in Euphoria, mm-hmm. but I, I sort of like being inside inside the line or having a certain kind of choreography to it and and doing it in as few shots as possible. The same holds true for Euphoria, which in all of its kind of maximalist insanity is is very um uh sort of we're very strict in terms of our our coverage. We shoot it on one lens. It's almost it's basically a single camera show. And there's not, um, you know, there's some, it's like, there's like two shots per scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and most of the time we try to just accomplish it in one. And if we can't, you know, but I think that that kind of, those little things l- allow the, the, the viewer even, or the audience, even just on an unconscious level to, to trust the material, even if it's unwieldy and, and kind of nuts like like euphoria is where it's going all over the place. But I feel like if we were using tight lenses and wide lenses, it would be the, I believe the whole piece would literally fall apart. What do you do though, when something's not working, when something's not coming together, is it, is it, is it, is it, is it working it through with the actor? I mean, I imagine you have to hit some beats that you're like, Hmm, this isn't working how I wrote it. Or, we might want to get out totally. of this earlier. Is this something because you're going chronological? It's 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 you and the two actors like working your way through this and thinking it out because what you just described sounded really good, but it's boxing you in if something creatively isn't isn't working to a certain degree. Yeah, but I, <laughs> I think that that's what makes it exciting. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, part part of the challenge of this film was there's no place to cut. Mm-hmm. I can't cut to a different scene. I can't cut to another room. I can't cut out of the scene. I can't go to another location. So we have to make it work. There is no choice. And that's what I think becomes sort of thrilling about it. Um, It sort of appeals to the kind of, (laughs) the sort of like junky aspects in myself where I'm just like, oh, this this is fucking scary. (laughs) Um, But I think, you know, 
Yeah, I mean, I think, but those kinds of restrictions, I think, are wonderful. And, um, and what I love about it is just if it's not working, then you have to figure it out. You have to just work through it, and and you have to if if it needs to be rewritten on the spot, then you rewrite it on the spot. If you got to cut these lines, if if it might feel sometimes, you know. You know, sometimes Z will say, you know, yeah, I just like, I don't know why I'm walking around this bar here. Mm-hmm. You know, it just, it feels funny. And I kind of go like, yeah, no, I know it feels funny, but it doesn't look funny. And, you know, so I'm not really interested in what feels funny one way or another. It's like, as long as it, it looks right, and as long as it kind of serves the overall momentum of the scene, and we would go back and forth and uh, we've got such a great relationship that sometimes... You know, she'll be like, no, no, I'm going to stand right here and I'm going to do it this way. And, and we'll suss it out in the editing room because mm-hmm. sometimes she's right. Sometimes I'm right. We, there's kind of no ego about that bullshit. But mm-hmm. um, but yeah, we just, you know, I think I would say a third of this movie we reshot while shooting it. So, for instance, you know, when JD's outside, you know, screaming at the trees about Ponte Corvo and shit, there was... That, you know, we did, I think, probably 25 takes one night of that scene. And then suddenly when he kind of, you know, erupted at the at the trees, I thought, that's the scene. That's that's what we got to do. So let's come back tomorrow and we're going to reshoot the whole thing. And, you know, we'll try to do it in just this kind of one sort of fluid dolly move. And uh, and and that's what we should start with. And then so we go back and reshoot the whole thing. Because part of it is his physicality too, right? Like I imagine he, he has a wonderful yeah. physicality, but I imagine that's also part of sometimes unlocking a key, uh, unlocking a, a, a scene is is what to do with that, right? And where to go with it. Totally, because if you have him in a medium shot, it's, you know, he might just drop out of frame and then Marcel will try to compensate and then we end up with this, <laughs> they're like, it, no one's in rhythm with one another. So, mm-hmm. you know, and it's also one of those things where you don't, you don't want to make an actor conscious of the things that they're doing that are really wonderful. Mm-hmm. So you can't say it, you know, I don't want to go up to JD and be like, you know, the way that you're dropping down, eh, don't, you know, just, I love that, but don't do this. Cause so, then, then it starts to become this, this thing that they try to over, that they overthink and it gets in the way and it could just fucking crater a whole performance just generally speaking. Um, and so I always, if there's like things that I think are really wonderful that are just happening. I try not to highlight them. So they become mm-hmm. a point of focus. And are there times that they have to give each other the full performance off screen in that sense of, 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 I mean, some of these things are very intense, very long takes. Is there times where they're having to do that off screen for each other from, for each other's coverage? A hundred percent. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I think that's the wonderful thing about both of them as actors is they're, they really root for one another. And I don't think we could have made this with, with anyone um, because it was such a specific environment. It's like we had 22 or 21 crew members and actors, producers, and crew members in total on this thing. So we needed someone, we, we, need, we needed the actors to support one another. It needed to be kind, you know, generous people because it's not, we had no first AD. We had no script supervisor. We had no props department. Z was doing her own hair and makeup. One key grip. You know what I mean? It's just, it It was too, it, it's just, you know, there's no call times. There was no, we didn't have a schedule. It was just Marcel and I would show up and go like, all right, well, should we just pick it up from that shot there that we had <laughs> talked about? And then we would have to kind of fill in everybody. Mm-hmm. As to what we were thinking, but we had we didn't have scene numbers. We didn't even know what the fuck to slate it as. So we would just go like day four, day five. <laughs> you have a uh, wonderful music supervisor who um, Jen Malone, um, and I'm very curious. Um, you, you've worked with her before, but I'm wondering on this film in particular. Um, you know, some of them, some of the needle drops are obviously built into what's going on screen. You know, they'll throw on the song or something like that. But in this type of I'm not trying to say that needle drops aren't important in euphoria and the needle drops in euphoria are wonderful. They're fantastic, but it's such a specific story choice. I have to imagine that's a collaboration. We talked about you and Zendaya working together and all the, but early, I have to imagine, are, are you working with Jen earlier and thinking about these music choices as you're, as you're writing? No, I mean, I, I look, I love music. Um, and I, I, you know, the, for instance, the opening 
you know, track uh, Down and Out in New York City by James Brown comes from the Larry Cohen film Black Caesar. Mm-hmm. And it's I, f- I remember from the first time I saw that movie, I just fell in love with that song. I've listened to that song constantly for the last 15 or 20 years or um, and and there's but there's also a music edit in the beginning of Black Caesar that always drove me nuts. Um, so I had I had this like desire to use to open up a movie with it without a music edit. So it was like a it was just a it was something that I wanted to do in my life at some point. And so and it's just such a fun celebratory song despite what it's about. Um, and uh, and so that one I kind of. That was sort of written into the script. And I think the, the songs that were written into the script were were that, the William Bell, Forgot to Be Your Lover, which I've always just found to be a very cinematic song. It feels mm-hmm. like a movie unto itself. And then the and then the piece um Get Rid of Him, which is uh Dion Warwick, which which comes which is from uh, Make Way uh for Dion. I think it was her second album. It's a track that I've always loved because I it's a it's this conversation of but I love him but get rid of her friend saying get rid of him and it felt like I just love when people use music to communicate mm-hmm. because they're either they don't have the words or they're too immature or whatever it may be to actually say what they're feeling so they try to use a song to to do it and I just like that the two of them related in that way so those things I think were built into it obviously I mean clearing the James Brown track was was very difficult it was like owned by six different you know, labels and things and, and all that. I, I, presume and then, did, I presume you did that before shooting. <laughs> yes. Yes. A hundred percent. We would have been, that would have been terrible. If so suddenly like, Hey, that's seven minute take at the beginning of the film. We can't use the, the song in it. Um, but I think, you know, and then, you know, Jen's great at finding like, you know, she sends over these bins to, to Julio, um, to Julio and I, and, and then I would say most of the time, like Julio and I just sit in the editing room and we just, play music to picture like 80% of the time. We don't even cut. Um, we'll just, we just go down these sort of wormholes of, you know, uh, it's like, you know, I don't, we start listening to like Nina Simone's Wild is the Wind, which leads us to Donny Hathaway, a song for you, which leads us to this thing and that. And we just go, and we just try it to picture and we'll just fucking experiment. And then we also do kind of the cardinal sin of, of, uh, you know, in editing of just, cutting to music and because I'm a big believer that music brings out the rhythm of a scene sometimes or can tell you about the rhythm of it so sometimes we'll put music to picture and cut to it and then we might even strip the music out but it still has a a rhythm within it but he's you know this was a different process because he was editing in a different location I couldn't go into the editing room um and so it was sort of like I had to give him my notes kind of on each each day of shooting and then he, a week later, you know, sent over the first cut of the movie and, you know, like sentimental mood, needle drop, I think it's like his hat tip to, to love Jones. And, um, you know, he's got his own, his own, uh, his own thing. We call him DJ Warchild. Um, but like, yeah, the, like the Namdi track is something that Jem Malone found that is just, I fucking love that song. Um, so it's kind of, it's sort of a collaboration between everyone. I know it, it's weird to say this, but cause I know every time you put music on picture, it's important and plays a huge role and completely shapes it. But there's just something about this movie. It's like, it feels like a misstep or something that's not like a home run is going to be felt intensely in this one in a way that maybe you could get away with like a pretty good. Music oh, totally. On, on an, on your yeah, yeah. It's like, no, we can we can like we can be like 70% on the mark in yeah. euphoria and it'll yeah. still work cuz it's got the it's energy such a fucking, it's good you know it's yeah. A, yeah yeah no there's um no no this is th- this one was tough um yeah i like you know i like cuz i there was quite a few hip hop tracks that i was listening to while writing that i um that i really loved and wanted to find a way into the film but then it just it just felt so out of place. Like there's this UGK track one day that is just phenomenal. And it felt very much like a Malcolm track that he listens to you that it would just completely fucking destroy the movie. If you put it in there, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't work together. I think a lot of them, I, we had to be pretty sparse with music and they also, they kind of serve as these sort of interludes 
between rounds. It's almost like if it's like a 12 round fight, it's just like a little band comes up and plays for 60 seconds and kind of helps shape the kind of emotional shifts within it. But I've enjoyed uh, these uh, euphoria one-offs. Um, and I, I'm curious, obviously it's a dialogue driven, same type of thing. Obviously you're working under certain restrictions here, COVID restrictions. Um, my take on this, and I'm wondering, uh, it feels to me like to some degree, these are almost like the type of character exercises one does with an actor or actress to get into, to help them understand a character's motivation or where they're from. It feels like to me, it's a lot of it, a lot, a lot of that fun character building stuff. It's like, what if we did a, a show about that? Like, what if we had, it seems like the one that I just watched, the one with Hunter, it feels like a lot of that came from maybe you and Hunter talking about this character and, and, and where she's coming from. But if I don't know, maybe I'm completely off on that, but it felt to me like it almost as an extra episode, almost these character building things. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of like, I've been thinking of them as kind of like dialogues in a way. Mm -hmm. So it's like Malcolm and Marie is its own kind of like strange Socratic dialogue where like one character states one thing and then the the other character is like, oh, really? You're not political? And just starts like pulling apart the threads until it kind of collapses and then it's sort of a back and forth. And I think the the Rue Ali episode uh, is similar in its its structure. Um, And it's just sort of, I don't know, it's just sort of an exploration of like, what those nights are like when you're first trying to get clean or you don't want to get mm-hmm. clean. And, um, and so I think that there's a, there's a, it, there's, there's a, a personal level to, to it all. And then I think with the Hunter episode, the, the dialogue is almost with herself and her imagination in some way that, uh, you know, mm-hmm. that there's a, that the struggle is, is, is kind of more internal and it's about, it's about what she wants versus what exists inside of her. And, and it's this kind of struggle of, of memory and poetry. And I mean, it's just, I, I think what was exciting about doing these things is it felt like we were totally free to do whatever we wanted to in the sense that it didn't have to adhere to a structure. It didn't have to feel like an episode of Euphoria. It could be completely its own thing which I think just, it's its own exercise. And I think that's how we've treated, we've kind of treated them as like, well, like we love these characters. Mm-hmm. Like you could never do the diner episode with Rue and Ali if we didn't have season one. Um, but because we love the character, we can push it in this way. And same thing with Jules, you know. Um, gotta let you go. I, I do, you know, it's funny. There is, I'm not going to get into all of this. There is a whole bunch here about critics. There's a whole bunch about, um, about current, you know, cultural theory as it applies to what we think about movies. And I'm going to let IndieWire get to shout out, um, to some degree, you know, (laughs) um, you know, and I'm not a critic and also I, there's a reason I'm not a critic, but you know, the thing that I, I kept thinking about last night after I turned off the movie because there's there's a lot of layers to this and it, it's not a quick conversation but one thing that I kept I, the thing that I wanted to ask you is as someone that is creating in 2021 less about how you feel about these issues and wh- which side of these arguments that you're on and whatnot is it really hard to keep some of these things out of your head while you're creating in the sense of the conversation that will happen around these films from whatever angle it is? Um, I don't know. I, I also think there's something... I also love these conversations, though. And I think that the movie... It's interesting, I because we get different sort of reactions to it. I think because I'm a filmmaker, people automatically assume that my opinions or ideas sort of align with Malcolm because Malcolm's also a filmmaker. Um, but the reality is I th- I, I very much... I identify as much with Marie as I do Malcolm. And I think that they're, they're, I'm not trying to make one point about anything. I'm not, I guess my frustration is more with the idea that we look at films in such a kind of straightforward, well, what is it saying? You know, what is its point? Mm-hmm. What's its sort of ideology? And I, 
I'm kind of far more interested in the complexities of the conversation than I am with the end point of it. Um, I think that, you know, uh, and when I've heard certain people say, well, it's, it's an attack on critics. And I go, well, first of all, no, it's not an attack on, on critics. It, Malcolm might be attacking a certain type of critic that he feels is reading the culture more than the material. But at the same time, Marie is also saying, yo, like, sis and I are in a foxhole together and her issues with you as a filmmaker are the same <laughs> issues I have with you as a partner. You know, so, and I think, look, identity and experience 100% informs mm -hmm. what we make. I also think at the same time, filmmaking is a collision of identities. It's what makes it so unique and such a beautiful form is that you're on set. It's why diversity is 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 so important to the industry is because when you're on set with, you know, with people who who maybe don't share the same, you know, background or race or orientation as you, you're you're approaching every idea from production design to set dressing to cinematography to producing to any of it from you're you're bumping up against each other and going, well, I see it this way, or when I was growing up, this happened. And I think that the kind of chief goal, at least in my mind, of 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 directing is to is out of that debate, out of that conversation, to kind of try to bottle up what feels universal. And that's what becomes sort of exciting uh to me. I think in terms of Malcolm and Marie, it's it's a dialogue a back and forth dialogue. I don't think it stakes a, a, um, a, a position one way or another on things like, you know, uh, film criticism or anything, um, as much as it does on the idea that if you do not acknowledge the contributions of your partner, partner or collaborators, um, your world is going to collapse. It's a very, you know, um, people who feel like they're not heard or not listened to. Um, it's and, and the people who essentially create the life around, say, an artist. Um, uh, if, if, if you're not giving that as much love and attention as you are your work, um, things are going to cave in. Well said, Sam. Uh, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And uh, I really, really would love to talk about Euphoria. Uh, with you when you uh, when you get a chance when you're back. Do you know when you're going back to that? Are you start? Do you have a date to start? Or we, yeah, we're going to start in I think uh, late March, and then the goal is to to release uh, um, to release episodes this year. So great, we're that's hopefully. But I would love to talk to you further about it. This has yeah. been wonderful. Thank you so much for. I'm a big fan of your of your podcast, so it I, means a lot. Oh, I appreciate. it. Thank you for coming on. Mm -hmm.